0: Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 8, Into Exile. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 of Season 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, if you're already on the way with us, welcome back. I've missed you, friend. Here is today's story. After all the time and ink that kings and chronicles spend on their champion Josiah, it is little wonder that their summaries of the kings to follow are terse and spare, given the differences between Josiah and his offspring. Surely you've noticed that one of the chief ways the writers of Tom comment on the string of bad kings is by not commenting on them, by not giving them much space. That's one of the reasons so many of these various fellows' names were, and still are, off your radar. They've been intentionally consigned to anonymity so that those who should be remembered, like Hezekiah and Josiah, are. It is a different way than in your habitat as you focus so much energy on negativity that the bad gets more attention than the good. Try switching that and enjoy the change. Speaking of Josiah's offspring, he's got four sons. They're all tidily lined up by the chronicler in his opening summary in First Chronicles 3.15. All but one of Josiah's sons spend time on the throne after him, a record in the line of David, not that this is a good thing. Josiah's youngest son, Jehoahaz, Yahweh has grasped, in Hebrew, I extend my hand to the fellow, but he doesn't grasp back. Perhaps in reaction against his given name, around the house, Jehoahaz goes by shalom, retribution. So after Josiah's death, the people put his youngest son, Jehoahaz, on the throne at the age of 23. Why the people have had a hand in it And why they've made the youngest of Josiah's four boys king first is a mystery in Tom, other than a safely assumed popularity with the populace. It could be they thought he had a better chance of walking in his dad's steps, given what they'd seen in his older brothers, or any number of things. None would matter much since he has a whopping three months as king during which he manages to get lumped into doing evil in the eyes of Yahweh just as his predecessors had done category 2 Kings 23:32 the evil referring obviously not to dad but to grandpa manasseh great grandpa amon and all the others in the class What Jehoahaz does show us rather quickly is that there are significant repercussions to Josiah's attempt to intercept the Egyptians, repercussions that reach further than just the good king's demise. Judah has become a vassal state yet again, now to Egypt, seen as Pharaoh Necho removes Jehoahaz from the throne and takes him bound to Egypt while placing Josiah's second son, Eliakim, on the throne instead. Then, in further double display of Egypt's sway, Pharaoh requires of Judah a large monetary tribute and also changes Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. The change is subtle but speaks first of Necho's total control of Judah now, who else could change a king's name, as well as of Necho's truly having had a momentary word from me as he had claimed to Josiah all along. Necho shifts Judah's king's name to honor me specifically, not simply God, the root El in Eliakim. While El had pointed to a more specific Canaanite god in the time of Abraham, that was a good 1,500 years earlier at this point, and usage has shifted to more general divinity than the specific fellow I was confused with back then. King Jehoiakim quickly steps firmly into his little brother's evil category. Not surprisingly, Jeremiah lights up again with our spirit and speaks into the rapidly declining situation speaking directly to Jehoiakim first in the palace, advising him to walk on the way and warning him of the long-told consequences of not doing so, Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah also deftly contrasts noble Josiah, do not weep for the dead king or mourn his loss, with his exiled younger son, for whom Jehoiakim is told to weep bitterly for him who is exiled because he will never return. After his immediate leap off the way and away from us, young Jehoahaz will now live out the rest of his life in exile and serve as a prototype for the coming experience of the entire kingdom. Not that the new king is wasting any tears on his brother, Jehoiakim is less concerned with being as good a king as his father as he is with redecorating the palace. Instead of ruling with Josiah's compassion and defending the cause of the poor and needy, Jehoiakim is exacting Egypt's gold and silver tribute from the people in the form of a burdensome tax instead of paying it out of his royal coffers, which are amply supplied now after the peace and prosperity under Josiah. No, Jehoiakim is spending his own money on new cedar paneling. That's also in Jeremiah 22. Having been ignored in the palace, Jeremiah renews our call on the people, standing up at our direction in our house and publicly proclaiming their need to turn from their evil so that I may refrain from and withhold the consequences barreling down on them. Consequences promised, as plain as day, as required by the laws of our covenant with the people, and then promised again and again in impossible to miss reminders by the pack of prophets we've sent. Returning to us to walk on the way is the only way to avoid the same demise as Shiloh. Jeremiah twenty six. Shiloh, a site once dedicated to us and our tabernacle was part of the northern kingdom, now conquered and exiled, and thus a shorthand example of these things for Judah. Sadly, the people's hearts have hardened as quickly as the king's. Gone is the faithfulness inspired by Josiah as the priests, the prophets, and all the people grab Jeremiah and say they're going to kill him for these severe words. Thanks be to me that some clear-headed officials believe Jeremiah's claim to be speaking for us, and they get wind of the mob's intention in time to intervene. Some of the elders old enough to remember point out Micah's parallel prophecies, along with the fact that King Hezekiah did not execute his contemporary prophet for Micah's harsh message. Jeremiah is thus spared it doesn't hurt that he also has a friend in the royal court. Not so another prophet speaking the same message at the time. He doesn't have his own book in the owner's manual and is in line of all the other spokesfolks we've lit up over the years who don't share a lifelong prophetic career with Jeremiah and his likes, but who have a word for the moment. This is clearly a time of crisis and so a fellow named Uriah has been lit up as well. He's not the public persona that Jeremiah has become, but Uriah is no less a thorn in King Jehoiakim's side with his indictments against the immoral king. In bald testimony of just how deep in the dark side Jehoiakim has gotten, the king has Uriah killed because he knows he can get away with it. Jeremiah twenty six twenty. It's a good guess the king is transferring his anger with Jeremiah onto the far more anonymous prophet. Note that Jehoiakim's rage is so great at getting so preached at by Uriah that when the prophet flees to Egypt, the king actually pursues him there, has him drugged back to Jerusalem, executed, and thrown in a common grave. Around the same time, another prophet, Habakkuk, engages in a brief, unique career, one that doesn't put him into the danger of being on Jehoiakim's radar, but still gets his three-chapter book nestled into the last bunch of minor prophets in Tom. Habakkuk is of an ilk different from his contemporaries. He's not the sort to speak out in public like Jeremiah or Isaiah, of whom Habakkuk is clearly a fan, quoting the prophet prince. Instead, Habakkuk engages with us in conversation, questioning our way of doing things and the way we seem to be allowing things to go down the tubes again with yet another evil, violent king on Judah's throne. Habakkuk doesn't mention the king by name, nor Uriah's murder, but his quick opening landscape of violence, injustice, and wrongdoing tidily sum up Jehoiakim's methodology. Habakkuk 1, 1 1-4 When Habakkuk asks me how I can possibly be letting things slide so much, my reply boils down to, wait and see. I am sending the Babylonians to teach Judah a lesson they won't ever forget. Now, the Babylonians are also known at the time as Chaldeans, which many translations of Tom use here. We will not take the time to unpack the strata of the Babylonian Empire and what flavor monarch rules in which age there. Just trust us on this. Habakkuk's reply amounts to, Yahweh our... Are you kidding me? Your eyes are too pure to even look at them. How can you use so ruthless a nation as Babylon? I comfort the panicking prophet with the assurance that Babylon's time will come, as their own greed and violence will catch up with them, their idol godlets will prove lifeless, and they will be gone. In the end, just as Isaiah has already promised. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of me as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk, too, holds our whole reply, and we quote Isaiah 11.9 together there at verse 14. Habakkuk ends his brief book by trusting in me, proclaiming that in spite of what looks to the contrary, I am in my holy temple and my faithfulness in the past points to my carrying him and my people through in the end. His final line sums it all up. The sovereign Yahweh is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, and enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk 2.20-3.19. If you're familiar with the book of Job, Habakkuk is nearly a cliff-notes version of that masterpiece, with both men going through a similar questioning journey, though Habakkuk is spared Job's personal strife, to find in the end their answer is to take the long view and trust that I am indeed working, and will prevail in the end. There is, of course, more to Job's forty-two chapters, which we shall eventually discuss a bit more. At the very least, Habakkuk shows you that I am fine with your doubt. Let me have it. Point out everything that bothers you. Make sure I know every detail. Ask me why as many times as feels right. I can take it. Then listen. Listen for our answer. It is written in Habakkuk and Job and in their faithful decisions to trust in me through hardship. It is written in history and the fact that the pharaohs, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and all their empires are bare memory, if that. It is written in the Abra plan being carried forward, fulfilled and poised even now to reach its ultimate purpose. You can doubt and trust in me at the same time, just like Habakkuk. Habakkuk's got it easy, though. A quick three-chapter conversation with us, and he's done. Jeremiah's a journeyman prophet of entirely different color and has the book to prove it. We'll return to Jeremiah and his mission and his book next time. In the meantime, keep walking with us on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support us, spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share a link to episode one with your friends. We hope our time together today has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way and be good to yourself.